This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you a mummer. She told you. And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the season finale of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated here. My name is Anthony, and I'm talking to Sky down in Texas. What's going on, Sky? Not much. It is starting to get humid, so I'm ready to get out of here. Just uh, <laughs> just uh, riding my life away with finals, but how is it going up there? Spring is in the air. All the blooms are out. It's, I don't know about the rest of Idaho, but a beautiful Boise weather right now. That's, oh, it's oh, amazing. I love it. It's my lovely. favorite time of year. Can't wait to be back. Yeah, we can't yeah. wait to have you back. I know. Oh, man. It's going to be, uh, <laughs> Idaho summers, they're hot, but at least they're not humid. I'll tell you. Yeah. I'll take it. Well, should we uh, get our last episode going, kick off the summer right? Well, I don't know if we would call this right, but yeah, let's do it. Fair enough, yeah. So, Anthony, why don't you kick us off? Let's see here. I've got a fella named Fred M. Seward, number 1511, and my sources today are the Idaho Daily Statesman, Library of Congress Chronicling America, of course, newspapers.com, ancestry.com. The book Hanged by Kathy Dinehart Hill, which you can actually purchase here at the Old Idaho Penitentiary gift shop. And Kathy actually also gave us all of her research that she gathered while writing that book. So I, you know, I went through all of her documents after I kind of did my own little research and kind of compared notes. And I also used just a brief article on SpokaneHistorical.org uh, about Fort George Wright. I'm going to let everybody know that this is a very dark story, so strap in. Fred M. Seward was born on January 11, 1881, to John W. Seward and Adela Jane Bryant. His parents had married a year earlier in Walla Walla, Washington, and had a farm in the Idaho border town of Palouse, Washington. On his intake, Fred would note that he was born in Kamiak, Washington, which is between Palouse and Pullman in Whitman County. He was the oldest of six siblings, Edna, Jesse, Charles, Leah, Rita, and Mamie. He spent most of his time helping around the family farm and noted that he had left home at the age of 13, dropping out of school with six years of education under his belt. He went to work at his uncle's farm. This would be his, basically the trajectory of his short life, moving from one town to the next, working at farms and other odd jobs. His parents picked up and moved to Republic, Washington, where they continued farming. I found Fred living in Kettle Falls, Washington, in the 1900 census, around the age of 19. He listed his occupation as day laborer. He was living as a boarder with George and Maggie Kent, who had several children themselves. 
George actually ran a livery stable, which is probably where Fred was working at the time. At the age of 21, Fred married a 16-year-old Iva Cook of Lynn County, Oregon, on April 11, 1902. They were married in Stevens, Washington. He listed his occupation as what I believe says laundry man on the marriage certificate. He and Iva had a son together around 1905 before separating, and I couldn't find any details about their separation. Fred never actually revealed this marriage and this life to authorities, really. And I couldn't find any official record of a divorce. And based on later information, it appears that they never actually finalized their marriage. But Iva and their son moved to Butte, Montana. The next individual I want to discuss is Clara Reese. She was born in Iowa in 1889, and the family picked up and moved to Wallace, Idaho, where they appeared in the 1900 census. She had an older sister, Selma, and two younger brothers named Robert and Lee. Her father, Thomas, worked in the quartz mill, and her mother, Della, was a housewife. At the age of 17, Clara married Owen O'Neill on June 10, 1906, in Spokane, Washington. Private Owen F. O'Neill, 26 years old, had been a soldier for nine years and was stationed at Fort George Wright in Spokane. He was a member of the 10th Regiment Company F and was a veteran of the Spanish-American War in 1898. I dug into the 10th Infantry on Wikipedia and found several Medal of Honor recipients of members from his company who risked their lives rescuing others under heavy fire during firefights in Cuba. So he was probably involved in, in some of that action. In 1906, Owen listed his occupation on the marriage certificate as an engineer. The couple had a child named Pearl, who was born paralyzed. The burden of raising a disabled child may have led to trouble in their relationship. There aren't really any details, but Clara O'Neill separated from Owen. As a young single mother, she had a few options. She left Pearl at an aunt's house in Spokane and moved to the town of Palouse, Washington on the Idaho border. There, she met a woman named Grace Fleming, who offered her a job in a brothel. Grace Fleming's home base was actually in Moscow, Idaho, across the border, where she ran a house of ill repute called simply 222. Grace ran several of these houses in nearby towns and was always on the lookout for girls down on their luck to work. As we mentioned last week, sex work was a common thing in mining towns as it provided relief for miners and other men who may have resorted to otherwise more violent actions. I found a myriad of stories involving Grace. For instance, in 1907, a woman from Yakima, Washington, found herself a widow after the sudden death of her husband. Unable to take care of the child, her friends actually urged her to adopt her daughter to Grace Fleming. Now, the woman thought that Grace was just this wealthy boarding house owner in town. So she asked, and Grace agreed to take care of the child, who was about five, six years old. But when the mother found out that Grace ran a, quote, house of ill fame, end quote, which was adjoined to her personal home, she demanded her child back. And after a lengthy court battle that turned into a three-way tug-of-war between the mother, grandmother, and Grace, the mother finally regained custody of her daughter. And I found several other stories of men being beaten near the house and probably for abusing girls or not paying and other serious criminal activities around her life. Did Grace have any children of her own or was it just like, oh, she's a wealthy woman in town who doesn't have any children. Maybe she would be a good candidate for this informal adoption. 
I don't know how this mother didn't do any research because according to Kathy Dinehart Hill, between 1894 and 1908, Grace had been arrested 19 times for hmm. prostitution-related crimes. So, I mean, she was a pretty well-known madame in town, and she was no stranger to law enforcement. So I, I think she was just so down on her luck that she right. was looking for anybody to take care of this child, and that, literally anybody, right, you know. Right, right. Hmm. I don't know if Grace had any children herself, though. I would love to actually do a, a deeper dive on Grace just to know because there there were actually several crimes and I, I found one instance of a man actually coming to prison after he uh, assaulted Grace and actually fired a gun in her direction and, and was locked up for, for an assault. Hmm. Yeah, so I'll probably cover that in a future episode and do a deeper dive on Grace Fleming. Now, 1908, Fred Seward visited the house in Palouse and was instantly smitten by Clara, who's going by the name of Grace Wilson. So when you hear the name Grace Wilson, know that I'm talking about Clara Reese O'Neill. After several uh, transactions with her, the two began to chum around together, and Fred started to have real feelings for her. She finally revealed her true name, Clara Reese O'Neill, to him. And according to reports, Fred was working as a bartender in Palouse at the time. After a while, Clara decided to leave town. Fred was still enamored with her, and newspapers' reports kind of conflict on the motivation, so we may never know the reality of the following situation. Some reports said Fred was trying to keep Clara as a working girl so he could live off of her earnings, working simply as her pimp, essentially. A newspaper would note, that Fred, quote, claimed to be in love with Mrs. O'Neill, but it is believed he was living off of her earnings, end quote. Fred would always say that he wanted to save her from that life, and he wanted to marry her and raise a family with her. Regardless, Clara seemed to grow tired of Fred, and it was a natural thing for her clients to begin having feelings for her. And, it, you know, it's not very good for business if she has a jealous client always hanging around. Clara skipped town around September of that year and actually went back to Spokane. And after a short time, she called Fred and invited him to the city. So he went with the whole intention of breaking up with her, but she refused. He seemed to fall right back in love with her and asked her to move to Boise, Idaho, where she wasn't known for her trade like she was back in Washington. She agreed, which gave Fred a sense of relief, and he returned to Palouse to pack up and start a new life in Idaho's capital. Instead of heading to Boise, though, Clara returned to the great Madame Grace Fleming back at the 222 in Moscow. She checked into the Del Norte Hotel under the name Mrs. Lawrence, and she told friends that she wanted to leave the business she was in and find a job as a waitress in Moscow. After getting things together, she planned to pick up her daughter Pearl in Spokane and find some treatment for her. Fred got word that Clara returned to Grace Fleming's house and traveled to Moscow. He intended to break things off again with her. He told police that he went to Grace Fleming's establishment and spent the night, but not with Clara, probably with the intention of making her jealous. Mm. The two had many arguments over a three-day period. Fred would later tell police that Clara told him she wanted to expand her business to Pullman, Washington, where she could make a lot of money off the college boys in town. This probably broke Fred's heart. Now, this drama finally came to a head on October 19, 1908. Around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Fred came to the 222 and found Clara. 
The two began to argue in the kitchen, and Grace and other working girls came to listen. Fred decided it would be better to go into the alley behind the house and continue the conversation and finally end this relationship once and for all. It was raining outside, so they stepped off into a little storeroom shed. Fred threatened that he was going to expose her family to the fact that she was a sex worker if she did not leave the trade and come with him. Fred would say that as she straightened his necktie, she pulled a knife and tried to cut him, shouting, If you go and leave me after all this, I will kill you. Fred responded, By God, I'll beat you to it. He forced his left arm around her neck, halfway choking her. He pulled his gun and fired three times. The first bullet pierced her chest. The second went clean through her body and struck his left arm that held her body up. And the third went through her right temple. Her lifeless body crumpled to the ground. Fred then turned the 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver on himself, pointing it to his forehead just above his right eye. He fired. He crumpled to the ground near Clara. The bullet did major damage to the skull and his eye, but he survived the blast. Oh he lay on the ground moaning. He mustered the strength to pull out a jackknife and began cutting away at his throat, hoping okay. to hasten his death. He admitted in the hospital that the knife wound was self-inflicted, but on the stand he would say that Clara cut his throat while acting to adjust his tie. Only those two could know what really happened. Grace Fleming heard the gunshots and rushed out into the alley and discovered the bloody scene. She called the sheriff's office. Sheriff J.J. Keene and Deputy Sheriff Grant Robbins rushed over and found Clara, quote, lying in a pool of her own blood that nearly covered the floor face downward, end quote. Fred was conscious but unable to speak clearly. He used gestures and a few words to admit to the killing. He was able to stand and eventually walk to the ambulance where he was taken to the Inland Hospital. That's insane to me that he shot himself in the head and that he's able to then walk to the ambulance? Right. What? And I, this is... Okay, keep going. Yeah, so Dr. Clark, who actually attended him, said, quote, His recovery is a question. I found the windpipe severed, and we had to sew it together. Uh. The bullet wound will not kill him, but we cannot tell for a few days what the outcome will be, end quote. Uh, the human body is so crazy to me. And, like, the brain and the way that the parts of your brain that control different things and the fact that, again, he shot himself in the head and like his like he didn't immediately die like most of his motor functions are still there and the human body is insane this is crazy it really is yeah oh oh man soon after this clara's father thomas came from wallace to identify her body and she was actually buried in the moscow cemetery two days later on october 21st 1908 by killing her fred did what he had threatened to do quote to expose her to her parents, end quote. Okay. Fred spent three days in the hospital before regaining his strength and landing in the Lataw County Jail. Three days! Newspapers had a heyday, telling the tale of the scarlet woman and the jealous man, and Moscow's reputation was soiled. Lataw County wanted to make an example out of Fred Seward. 
According to several newspaper accounts, Fred was not seen as a bad man. He had never been in trouble before, and as I mentioned, newspapers had speculated that Fred just fell into a bad line and attempted to live off the earnings of Clara working in the brothel. His trial began on December 7th, but Fred revealed to the court that he had no counsel, so an attorney named Warren Truitt was provided for him. Truitt had a week to prepare a case for Fred Seward. On December 9th, Fred pled not guilty to the charge of murder in the first degree. On December 14th, the jury was impaneled, and the first witness prosecuting attorney William Stillinger called for was Deputy Sheriff Grant Robbins, who reported that Grace called them to the scene. Quote, On arriving at the storage room on the alley back of Grace Fleming's house, I pushed the door open and discovered Grace Wilson lying in a pool of blood, dead, and Fred M. Seward lying nearby and a revolver lying on the floor and the blood between them. My first impression was that they were both dead, and when I told Sheriff Keene that I guessed they were both dead, Seward said, I am not dead, but I have fixed the girl, end quote. The next witness was Dr. W.H. Carothers, who told the jury that Fred had admitted that the bullet wound that he had in his arm was self-inflicted when it passed through Clara's body. This was not a case of self-defense. Grace Fleming took the stand and revealed Clara's true name, Clara O'Neill, and her backstory about working for her in Palouse and wanting to get a normal job and take care of her daughter, Pearl. Quote, I knew that Grace wanted a reform and I wanted to try to help her all I could while she was trying to earn money to pay for doctoring the baby. Seward, who followed Grace down here, was a tin whore dinner pail saloon swamper who had been living off Grace Wilson's earnings and wanted her to go to Beauville to rustle for him. She rebelled and was trying to get away from him. When the shooting occurred, I suppose they had gone to Spokane after the baby on the 1240 train and never knew any different until I heard the shooting. Grace had stayed at the Del Nor Hotel when she came to Moscow and only came by my place on the way to the train to go after the little girl. This man Seward was in town watching her and came to my place with her. They were quarreling, and I hated him so bad that I could not speak to him. So they went out to the train, but when passing the storage house, they stepped in there, and that is when he shot her afterwards instead of going away on the train. This girl had been a waitress in Spokane and was not a sporting woman, but a short time, and after I closed out in Palouse, she wrote me that she wanted work and was going to do anything she could to support her child and have it doctored, end quote. What what was her the insult that she used at the very beginning? He was a tin horn dinner pail saloon swamper. That's it. I love that. Isn't that yeah? That's so good. I I happened because I read that like it just made me think of this kind of southern vibe, you know. But you know you can imagine a madame that the look of a madame just this tough stern woman on the stand. I'd imagine I'd imagine that she knew some more colorful words, but I think for <laughs> her to articulate it in that way is kind of fantastic. Probably staring Fred down uh, as she's saying this too. Like I this love whole her. thing. She's probably just looking at him. Yeah. Oh. She's probably uh, dealt with Grace. Worse worse men in her uh establishments in the past. Oh so. yeah. That she's, you know, this formidable imposing figure who's like protecting her girls. Oh love it. The worst piece of evidence was Fred's own signed confession that he had made in the hospital. And his attorney, Truett, attempted to battle this by saying it was signed while he was suffering from a traumatic brain injury. 
but the judge allowed it to stay. Now, the jury deliberated less than two hours on December 17, 1908. They found Fred guilty of murder in the first degree. On December 28, 1908, the judge proclaimed to a silent courtroom, quote, It is the judgment of the court that you be turned over to the warden of the Idaho State Penitentiary at Boise, and there executed by said warden by hanging by the neck until dead, that this death sentence be executed on Friday, February 19, 1909, between the hours of 8 o'clock a.m. and 2 o'clock p.m. of said day. Fred, standing to hear the sentence, reeled and grasped the table for support, visibly affected by the pronouncement. February 19, 1909, was less than two months away. Traveling guard Dan Ackley traveled to Lewiston and brought Fred back to the institution. It was noted that he arrived and was very despondent. Like all death row prisoners, he was put under death watch in case he attempted suicide a second time. So his intake form, his name, Fred Seward, number 1511. He was received January 2nd, 1909 from Lataw County during the November 1908 term of court. Crime, murder in the first degree, sentence, death, age, 28. Born in Semiac, Washington. Occupation, farmer. Height, 5 foot 6 and a half inches tall. Light complexion, 162 pounds. Light brown curly hair. Light brown eyes with a note, quote, left out, end quote. Separated and had one child. Both his parents were living. He left home at the age of 13. He had religious instruction in Sunday school in a Christian church, but was not a part of a church when he arrived. He attended school six years. He drank moderately. He had no former imprisonment. His nearest relative was his father, John Seward, living at Republic, Washington. His teeth were good. He had no beard upon arrival, wore a size 8 boot, 7 hat, and had a dollar bill and clothes that were locked in the commissary. His figure showed that he was quite hairy. He had gunpowder marks and a scar on his right eye, had scars on his left hand and fingers, a birthmark in his upper inner left thigh, a couple moles on his right back shoulder, and a scar on his throat. They also wrote that he had small ears, but a regular nose and chin, and you can see the wound to his eye mm-hmm. in his mugshot. Mm-hmm. Now, the newspaper noted that religious leaders actually regularly visited Fred, but he refused to sit with them and showed a, quote, spirit of braggadocio about his plight. On February 17, 1909, two days before his execution date, newly elected Governor James Brady granted Fred a reprieve for the next meeting of the Board of Pardons after a meeting with Fred's father, who had traveled to Boise. And we've discussed Governor and later Senator Brady several times in the podcast, particularly the Barney O'Neill episode and last week's episode. The board, led by Warden E.L. Whitney, met on April 7, 1909, to discuss the case. They could choose to commute his sentence to life in prison or uphold the original sentence, death. They decided to uphold the sentence and set his execution date for a month away, May 7, 1909. A week and a half later, on April 19, 1909, John Snook became warden of the penitentiary, taking over from E.L. Whitney. Fred and his attorneys filed another application, and the board, now headed by Warden Snook, gathered again on April 26, 1909 to review it. 
Governor Brady, Attorney General Daniel McDougal, and Secretary of State Robert Lanzen gathered to discuss and listen to Fred's attorney, B.S. Crow. Quote, Crow argued in vain on behalf of the client, who, he stated, was facing death without friends or sufficient funds to pay an attorney fee. End quote. The board listened and voted unanimously that Seward should, quote, pay the penalty for what is classed as one of the most brutal crimes in the history of northern Idaho, end quote. They denied the appeal. Warren Snook shared the news with Fred, who responded, quote, All right, let them shoot their wad. When is this big thing to come off, end quote. Gross. Warren Snook told him, May 7th. Soon after this meeting, Fred finally began taking a visitor, Reverend Chafent. The months leading up to his execution, he had refused any religious advisement, but a week before, quote, humbled by the approach of the day of execution, professes to have accepted religion, and relying on his faith, announces he is ready to pay the full penalty of his crime, end quote. He reportedly spent most of his days writing letters to family and friends with a request that they be sent after his execution. The scaffold was erected. A statesman article on the day of the execution noted that this would be the sixth time it had been used and the fourth time within the prison walls. The previous hangings were Herman St. Clair in 1898 at Idaho City, James Ellington in Boise in 1895, Ed Rice in 1901 at the prison, James Connors in 1904 at the prison, and Fred Bond in 1906 at the prison. Warden Snook tied the noose around the scaffold erected in the prison rose garden near the dining hall and weighed it down with several hundred pounds of sandbags to stretch it. He was hoping for a clean execution. Fred would have been able to witness this through the window that his cell faced in the 1890 cell house looking out to the rose garden. Can you imagine? I always, when on tours, I always mention that, and it is just like, you just watch them, like, build the scaffold, and you watch them test it, and you just, it's, I mean, it's the same with, like, Ray Snowden, where he didn't see it, but they could hear, he could hear it every single time they opened that trap door, like, ugh, horrible. Yeah, so heavy. Now, a day before the execution, he told journalists, quote, I am ready to go, and the sooner it is over, the better. I have faith in the hereafter and am satisfied of my forgiveness. The awfulness of the execution of the sentence will be worse for my aged father, mother, sisters, and brothers than for me. End quote. He paced the cell all day and had a hearty meal that evening. At 6 a.m. on May 7, 1909, he awoke. The officers who served as his last death watch, E.P. Merritt and T.C. Gregory, noted that he slept soundly all through the night. He had a light breakfast of mush and milk with the reverend. He refused any drugs or alcohol, stating that his newly found religious convictions prevented him from using them. Warden Snook closed off attendance to the public, only inviting officers, physicians, spiritual advisors, and newspaper men to witness the hanging. About 50 witnesses were in attendance. He was offered drugs and alcohol? His last, like, it was like a last meal, but it was last drugs or alcohol? Yeah, yeah. So most most men who were led to the gallows, they were actually offered like a shot of whiskey, which uh, we'll we'll hear that in a future episode as well. Or they were given a shot that basically just kind of calmed them down. Like a, I see. Okay. I, I need to figure out what that that was, but okay. yeah, in, in most like, cases. So it's not. I mean, it's not like recreational drugs where they're like, here, have some pot. Like it's like either you can you basically you can get something to just like calm your nerves, so you're not like 
Yeah. Completely freaking out. Okay, that makes more sense. Exactly. Just okay. a minor sedative to okay, okay. get you to the gallows. Yeah. Okay. So about 50 witnesses were in attendance. Quote, the gallows was veiled with canvas so that nothing but the death march could be seen from the hills outside the prison wall, where a few spectators stood, end quote. At 8 a.m., Warden Snook entered the cell, and the reverend left. Before he left, Fred told the reverend, quote, I will have nothing to say on the scaffold, but you may say for me that while I have made a failure in life, I have hope for the life to come. God has forgiven me, and I have peace, end quote. Snook read him the death warrant. At 8.04, the death march to the gallows began. Fred walked calmly to the gallows, and as he passed his fellow prisoners, sounded a cheerful farewell to them, much like Fred Bond had. Warden Snook trained his officers to do as little talking as possible during the event, using hand signs and gestures when possible. Fred was led up to the gallows, and the witnesses took off their hats in respect. He was asked if he wanted to make a statement, and he said no. He was bound. Reverend Chafent began praying, which would continue through the entire execution. As the deputy warden put the noose around his neck, Fred said, quote, Rich, make a good job of it. A journalist from the Statesman noted, quote, The condemned man, with prayer on his lips, courageous to the last, repentant for his crime and expressing hope of salvation stepped with a firm tread onto the trap which a few moments later sent his soul into eternity no evidence of weakness was manifested until the very last when the black cap was drawn over his head then his whole being shuddered as though chilled by a cold blast End quote. at exactly 809 and 5 milliseconds with the noose and hood over his face the deputy warden nodded at Snook, who stepped on a trigger. The trap sprung. Fred dropped seven feet and hit the end of the rope. His death was instantaneous. Prison physician George Collister ran under the scaffold and grabbed Fred's wrist and noted that his heart continued beating at 100 beats per minute until 8, 16, and 35 milliseconds when he was pronounced dead. Deputy warden Rich cut the rope from above using a sharp knife. Quote, the body was immediately placed in a coffin of polished wood, end quote, by guards Stone, Kramer, and Martin. The hood remained over his head. According to Warden John Snook's biennial report from 1909 to 1910, he paid $20 to Schreiber and Seiden for this coffin. The grave in the prison cemetery was already dug. He was raised to the back of a trailer and taken directly from the scaffold to his eternal resting place, where a short prayer was said and the execution party left the grounds. Quote, no hitch had taken place in the affair, the new warden having accepted the most serious of his new duties without a tremor, and no one, not even the prisoner himself, having shown a sign of weakness through the ordeal. End quote. So was his family unwilling to take his body, unable to take his body? Is there a specific reason that he was buried in the prison cemetery rather than, like, where his family preferred to have him buried? You know, there was no mention of mm. why his family didn't take his body. Mm. Yeah, okay. so my my only thought, it was probably they weren't able to afford the transfer and, and burial elsewhere. Right, okay. Two days later, an opinion article appeared in the Boise Capital News asking what could be gained by capital punishment. Instead of one life being lost and without reform and hope, now there were two. 
A local reverend in Boise had a sermon that Sunday about the Prince of Peace and the Prince of War and stated, quote, The official murder at the penitentiary the other day was the most demoralizing in its influence upon the people who read the horrible details of the transaction. Let men who are a menace to the life of the public be shut up where they can do no harm to their fellows. But let the state learn to help, reform, and save them, but not destroy them. Thou shalt not kill is as good scripture for a state or nation as for a church or an individual. End quote. Warren Snook would write in the 1923-1924 Warren's Biennial Report, quote, In my opinion, one of the chief reasons for the large number of murders in the United States is that the death penalty is not promptly enforced. This law should not be repealed until special provisions for the care and incarceration of men condemned for first-degree murder is provided. Lifetimers, without fear of death or hope of pardon, would be a constant menace to the lives of officers and fellow inmates of any prison conducted along present lines. And in case of escape, the danger involved in recapturing such men would be enormously increased. In my judgment, based on 16 years' experience as an officer, the repeal of this law would be a mistake, as the one thing the criminal fears most is the penalty of death. End quote. Fred's grave is unmarked in the prison cemetery. We do not know where he is actually buried. A letter actually arrived on November 7th, 1910 from Butte, Montana to Sheriff Robbins in Lataw County. Quote, Dear Sir, as I heard a few days ago that my husband, Fred Seward, was hanged for the murder of some woman there in Moscow, I wish you could write and let me know if it is true or not and oblige, Mrs. Iva Seward. End quote. The sheriff responded, revealing all of the details of the crime and the execution. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, I guess it was easy to forget that he was still married because he, you right. know, pursued Clara for so long. But, uh, I mean, can you imagine, like, being separated from, in your case, Becky, and then finding out that, like, she's been executed for killing someone? Like, oh. what? What? Well, and, and interesting, too, that he didn't mention, like, I don't know, maybe you should write my wife or, like, that no prison official was like, hey, who's your wife so we can, like, let her know what's going on? Like, huh. Yeah. Huh. There was one Terrible. newspaper article that did say that he told the reverend that he had a wife and a five-year-old son. Mm. And that was, like, just days before his execution. And I'm not sure if they were able to track her down or... Mm. Uh, what hmm. what that issue was so this yeah this was the only letter and it was just this one note from iva and oh man it was just like so heartbreaking to come mm -hmm. across that and then clara's daughter pearl i discovered that she actually died in 1916 oh. after suffering from tuberculosis Sad. so it's just it's one of those cases that it's just oh so Tragic. full of tragedy yeah exactly i worry this year as as things are opening up and a lot of relationships have been tested and people are starting to go out and you know rekindle their social lives you know i just really hope that we don't see more of this in this coming year so everybody just love your <laughs> your spouse your <laughs> you know end things cleanly and lawfully and let cooler heads prevail because right. 
life is too short as it is. And yeah. Excellent work. <laughs> Thank you, Sky. Yeah, it was. It's been a like a rough week. Like I've been working on this at, at home a little bit. My wife will come in, and I'm like, I'm not crying. I'm not. And I was all, like writing these things. <laughs> what are you doing in here? I'm like, oh, I love you. <laughs> oh, oh you and Becky are cute. You'll you'll <laughs> never be a Fred Seward, thankfully. No. Yeah, it's. Oh, I mean, besides so the fact that you deeply love your wife, you are just—it's not in your nature to be mad about anything. I don't think I've ever seen you mad about anything ever <laughs> in my whole life that I've known you. I think it's I'm literally pretty, impossible. Pretty going. <laughs> I'm pretty blessed with uh, the rosy sunglasses that I wear here. <laughs> That's lovely. We love you, Anthony. Ah, ah. thanks, guy. <laughs> well, great job. <laughs> with a with a tough story. In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked lived and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. I hear that you have an equally dark story to share with our listeners today. I do. It's maybe not as well, actually. No, it's pretty dark. It's, it's, I mean, I feel like it's not a season under if it's not dark for us. <laughs> I, uh, I feel like that's kind of what people, some people want. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is a, this is a rough one. I'm not going to lie. And this is one again that I definitely going into it was just like she is horrible and terrible and unbelievable. And then the more that I did research, it wasn't that I like was like, "Oh, she's misunderstood." It was more just like, "Okay, I don't hate her as much." Like it isn't it yeah. doesn't seem that it was done maliciously. It was just a really dumb thing to do with a really tragic ending. So so with that, <laughs> Leading into it, I today am talking about number 11732, Lula Ann Shreve. And my sources today, Inmate File, Idaho Daily Statesman articles, newspaper.com articles, ancestry.com records, wardner.id.gov, shoshonecounty.id.gov, a westernmininghistory.com article on Kellogg, the Idaho State Historical Society reference series on the Coeur d'Alene Mining Wars, a World History Project article on the Sunshine Mine Fire, the final report on the Sunshine Mine Fire by the U.S. Department of Mines, and just a few basics on Wikipedia. So, Lula Ann Shreve was born on April 29, 1921, in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, to parents Ralph and Eileen gresick Reinol. In 1930, in the census, it kind of seems like the family sort of grew up in the middle of the Coeur d'Alene National Forest, where her mother worked at a tourist camp. In fact, their street address in the 1930 census is just listed as Yellowstone National Highway, which is kind of cool and fun. Oh. 
Um, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and and as far as I could tell, her father was a World War One veteran. He served in the 41st Infantry Division, but he just jumped from job to job as a laborer. Now, interestingly, the 1940 census listed his income as zero, but it also stated he made income from other sources. Now, what those other sources were, I don't know. Her Again, her mother was still sort of working at, I think they, she worked as at that tourist camp through the 30s. And by 1940, she was not doing that anymore. So I don't know exactly what went on there. But regardless, Lula was the second of seven children, all girls. She had an older sister, Eva, and then younger sisters, Daisy, Rosie, Clara, Eileen Jr., and Lizzie. So Lula graduated from Coeur d'Alene High School. Around the same time, she started to work in housework and child care. She also then took classes from North Idaho Junior College, which is now North Idaho College, but she dropped out to get married. And so on June 22nd, 1940, she married Francis William Shreve. Now, Francis was a smelter and a miner born in Wardner, Idaho in 1913. He was the second of four sons born to Gertrude and Clarence Shreve. Um, he was six feet tall, dark hair, blue eyes, probably quite the looker. Honestly, I couldn't find any pictures of him, but, you know, that's a that's a nice description. When he and Lula married, he was a smelter and miner at the Bunker Hill and Sullivan Mining and Concentration Company. Now, for those of you who don't know, like I did not know, a smelter is someone who heated mineral like gold, silver, and ore to extract the base minerals. And then, of course, those base minerals could be sold as themselves, used for other things. And the Bunker Hill and Sullivan Mining Company was the nation's biggest lead producer in 1940. It produced 16,953,995 tons of ore with a gross value of $203,533,000 in 1939. Do you want to guess our favorite game, how much money that is in 2020? And I guarantee it's going to be a lot more than you think it is like a trillion dollars <laughs> it's uh, okay fair enough it's actually three billion eight hundred fifty one million dollars in 2020 oh gosh just out of ore which like so ore is much. not even like a precious metal it's just used for a lot of things and so yeah so this bunker hill uh, and wow. sullivan mining company is huge and the fact that you know it's a huge employer in the area and we're going to learn a little bit more about them here in a little bit so even though the company is massively successful, the average worker, like Francis, still just made a pretty average wage. And so the Shreves weren't making a ton of money. But nevertheless, their first daughter, Frances Lula, was born on April 21st, 1941 in Kellogg. And about a year and a half later, that daughter was joined by a son, Daryl Robert, who was born on September 27th, 1942, also in Kellogg. And Lula didn't work outside the home. She was a stay-at-home mother instead. She would occasionally take in laundry or help a neighbor with childcare to help bring in extra money, but there was never really like a steady job outside of the home. Now, on May 20th, 1947, Lula and Francis got a quote-unquote quickie divorce in Washington. Now, she charged cruelty in the divorce proceedings. I don't know the details on this divorce, why she was charging that, but she got custody of their two kids. And then two days later, on May 22nd, 1947, Lula married Anton, who also went by Tony, M. Hellemans in Superior, Montana, which is just across the Idaho-Montana border from Kellogg. It seems like Lula and Tony met in Idaho, and they actually settled in Idaho after their marriage. 
there's no evidence to corroborate this, but I'm wondering, since they married so soon after the divorce, I'm wondering if, you know, an affair or adultery was maybe the cause of the divorce. I don't know. That's a very strange uh, circumstances. But Lula and Tony were happy for a little bit. On March 17th, 1948, their daughter Penelope, who is also known as Penny Ann, was born in Coeur d'Alene. So they were happy for a little bit, but it wasn't actually for that long because on July 28th, 1948, Lula and Anton or Tony divorced. She brought the suit again, charging extreme cruelty. And just as she had been before, she was granted custody of their daughter, Penny Ann. And Tony actually had to pay $25 a month in child support. So then... Strangely enough, on August 25th, 1948, Lula and Francis Shreve actually remarried. What? <laughs> they, they reconciled. They decided to, like, make a go of it again. And things would actually go well for quite a while. Their, their next daughter, Janice Louise, was born on October 3rd, 1953. So that is uh, about five years after their second marriage. So it wasn't, you know, they really took their time to, to develop um, their relationship again. And then they had another son, Dwayne Richard, who was born on December 12th, 1955. And then Francis actually adopted Penny Ann as his own, giving her the last name Shreve. The Shreves, you know, they've got a large family. They seem now to be happy again. So we're going to take a pause and we're going to we're going to take a pretty deep dive, actually, into some Kellogg and Wardner history. So We were actually just in this area in last week's episode. Wardner and Kellogg are less than 15 miles northwest of Wallace. So much of what we talked about last week also applies to this week. Now, Kellogg and Wardner sit in what is known as the Silver Valley for, unsurprisingly, its proclivity for silver mining. In 1885, a man named Noah Kellogg discovered a deposit of galena. And galena is a mineral form of lead sulfide, and it's sort of the most important um, form of like lead, I think. I've actually, to be honest, never fully understood mining. But regardless, it's an important source of silver. So Kellogg discovered this deposit of galena, and this area of discovery became home to the Bunker Hill and Sullivan Mines, and obviously was named Kellogg after this man who discovered it. Um, Wardner was named after Jim Wardner, who was an early promoter of the Bunker Hill and Sullivan Mines. Now, as I said, the you're going to hear the Bunker Hill and Sullivan mines a lot here in a little bit. They were it was the most one of the most important mines in the area, but it wasn't always an easy job. The early 1890s saw major labor strife among railroad workers and miners. And just so you know, all this information I got from the ISHS reference series. So check that out if you're interested. By 1892, mining in the area had started to decline, and the whole country was starting to suffer under uh, economic downturn. In 1892, there was a major panic economically. So even though this mining area was doing well, it was still prone to suffering the same economic downturn. So the Mine Owners Association ended up shutting down most of the mining in the Coeur d'Alene Mountains to try to preserve lead, silver, and ore reserves. And the MOA, the Mine Owners Association, was able to secure some rail rate and smelting concessions, meaning that the mining companies basically offered to reopen the mines if the miners accepted lower pay. And if the miners said, no, we need our full pay, then they d- the MOA decided they would just financially be better off to just keep the mines closed. 
So minor unions refused to work. So companies tried to use scabs or like outside employee strike breakers to work for lower wages, which, of course, causes some trouble between the miners who really need their jobs and are trying to strike so that they can keep their jobs and get, you know, their what they want. The scabs who are just brought in to you know, work, and then, of course, the companies. So in the summer of 1892, workers found out that their union secretary named Charles Syringo was actually working for the companies as a Pinkerton agent. And the Pinkertons uh, was a national detective agency. And so he was basically there to, like, infiltrate the union. And after they found this out, quote, the whole conflict literally exploded, end quote. Violence broke out between the miners and the scabs as miners continued to strike over wages, and Seringo found, quote, the leaders of the Coeur d'Alene unions to be, as a rule, a vicious, heartless gang of anarchists, end quote. On June 11, 1892, gunfire broke out between strikers and the guards slash strike breakers around the Helena Frisco ore mine at Gem, Idaho. And that Gem is between Wallace and a town called Burke, and Burke is actually another uh, mining ghost town. So during this shootout, after three and a half hours of shooting and no casualties, miners actually dynamited the Frisco mill, completely destroying the building and killing one strike breaker. And after this, the rest of the strike breakers surrendered. And, you know, that was actually quite a victory for the miners. Then gunfire broke out at the gem mine just a few moments after this, and three union men, one company guard, and one strike breaker were killed before the strike breakers finally said, okay, fine, we're done, we'll leave. On the evening of July 11th, so about a month after this original gunfire, uh, about 500 strikers left Gem to go to the Bunker Hill mine at Wardner. And there, strikers took possession of the ore mill during the night and put a ton of dynamite under the mill. And the next morning, the strikers gave the manager the choice, either discharge the non-union employees or have his mill destroyed. Do you want to guess what he chose? Have the mill destroyed? He actually chose to dismiss the non-unioners. So Aww. I know. Shows, <laughs> maybe shows the right one there. So after this event, mine owners asked Governor N.B. Willie, who was previously a mine superintendent himself, for martial law in the area, which he agreed to. There were no other major violent outbursts after the dynamiting at the Frisco Mill and the near dynamiting at Bunker Hill, but owners thought that their own armies seemed insufficient for any potential violence that would break out in the future. Mine owners were also able to arrest some union leaders for an injunction from a U.S. district judge, and they basically created like a makeshift jail, which they called a bullpen, because the county jail couldn't support all the Coeur d'Alene miners that they wanted to prosecute. So major union leaders, though, were uh, sent down to the Ada County Jail. And while confined in the Ada County Jail pending a hearing, those major union leaders decided that the various mine unions throughout the West should form a federation to support each other through times of crisis like this. And so they created the Western Federation of Miners, which completely unified and unionized the Coeur d'Alene region by 1899. And when we get to our very favorite, I don't know what you, visitor, I guess, Harry Orchard, We'll talk a lot about this Western Federation of Miners, but this is a this is a huge union in the area. And one company that we know quite well, the Bunker Hill and Sullivan, refused to work with a miners union, but members of the Western Federation infiltrated the company anyway. And on April 24, 1899, the miners demanded that the company adopt the prevailing union wage rate, which was higher than most other mines 
were paying. The Bunker Hill and Sullivan manager agreed to the wage demands, but refused to recognize the union. And so with this refusal, the Bunker Hill and Sullivan prepared a small army, assuming that another outbreak like the 1892 labor war. And so they, you know, the the manager started to basically get anyone who would be willing to fight um, and get paid, basically. The county actually had sheriff and officials who often opposed siding with companies, so they were actually favorable to unions. This sort of made for a, quote, hostile region for any company trying to hold back the miners' union, end quote. So on April 29th, five days after the miners sort of demanded this wage rate, a thousand miners came from Burke to Wallace, arriving with a train loaded with 3,000 pounds of dynamite, which was enough to demolish the big Bunker Hill and Sullivan concentrator. A labor union newspaper in Wallace reported, quote, At no time did the demonstration assume the appearance of a disorganized mob. All the details were managed with discipline and precision of a perfectly trained military organization, end quote. The mob did indeed dynamite and destroy the Bunker Hill and Sullivan concentrator, routing company forces with no difficulty at all. And amazingly, there were only two casualties in this event, one on each side. Now, obviously, the Western Federation of Miners considered this a major victory. But don't start cheering just yet. In fact, the (laughs) governor of Idaho, Frank Stunenberg, who again is a big name in Harry Orchard's story, He asked for intervention of state troops, not to preserve order, but to arrest offending minors and, quote, to test the power of the Western Federation in court, end quote. Under Studenberg, martial law remained in the area and no minors were allowed to work in any mine in the district without a state permit. And permits were not obtainable without withdrawing membership from the Western Federation. So, quote, when the mines reopened, the Western Federation had no minors at work, end quote. I'm going to leave Studenberg's story here. We'll pick up with Harry Orchard when they meet in 1905. So the Bunker Hill and Sullivan mines were not the only mines in the area to be home to major strife and other issues. So this is actually, you know, almost a a full century later with the 1972 Sunshine Mine fire. Now, this is a really this is a rabbit hole, but I thought this was fascinating. So, on the morning of May 2nd, 1972, 173 men began work at the Sunshine Silver Mine at 7 a.m. The owners of the mine, the Sunshine Mining Company, were in Coeur d'Alene at their annual stockholders meeting. Around 11.40 a.m., electricians Norman Ulrich and Arnold Anderson stepped out of the electric shop and they smelled smoke. It was soon learned that the smoke was coming from the 3100 level and the 3700 level haulage way. Now, the main problem was that both of these haulage ways served as the main fresh air intakes to the area near what was called the number 10 shaft, where most of those 173 workers were assigned. There were also exhaust fans on the 3400 level, which forced carbon dioxide and smoke into the mine even faster. So, but basically, there were two levels that were the fresh air intakes basically down into the mine those areas, smoke was coming from those areas. So that fresh air intake was now, instead of pulling in fresh air, pulling in smoke. And then on another level, there were exhaust fans, which then pulled in that carbon dioxide and smoke down into the mine even faster. 
So at 12.03, mine supervisors ordered the evacuation of the mine. 80 men escaped before the number 10 shaft hoistman, the, the man who was basically in charge of sort of hoisting up the elevator, he actually died because of smoke inhalation. And that left the men on the lower levels trying to get out themselves. Some tried to build a barricade from the smoke and the fire, and some found what are called self-rescuers, and that's a portable piece of equipment that provided breathable air. So they were able to find these self-rescuers. They put them on their faces to try to get themselves oxygen, and they attempted to make their way to the upper levels to get out. Unfortunately, most men were overcome with smoke and carbon monoxide and died before reaching the surface. A group of four men tried to go down into the shaft to rescue the trapped miners, but succeeded in rescuing only two. 91 men died that day of carbon monoxide poisoning. The cause of the fire was never definitively identified. The Bureau of Mines believed that the probable cause was spontaneous combustion of refuse near some scrap timber. The Bureau of Mines also determined several major factors contributing to the death toll, and here's just a few of them. One was that the was company personnel delayed ordering evacuation of the mine for about 20 minutes while they searched for the source of the fire. Most of the underground employees had not been trained in the use of self-rescuers, and some self-rescuers had not been maintained in usable condition. And another was that mine survival training, including evacuation procedures, had not been given to mine employees. This uh, 1972 Sunshine Mine Fire was one of the worst mining disasters in American history, and it was the worst in Idaho history. Today, a monument to the lost miner stands at I-90 near the mine. Now, the mine actually closed after this, but it only closed for about seven months. And when it reopened, it actually regained its position as the number one silver producer in the nation. Interestingly, the mine closed what seemed like for good in 2001. One company attempted to reopen the mine in 2009, and finally another company succeeded in reopening it in 2010. In 2012, another fire broke out on that 3100 level of the mine, but this time... They were prepared. They took lessons from this last one, and no one died. Oh, man. That was a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, there there are a bunch of songs and poems to the tragedy of Sunshine Mine, and I think that um, even Andy Frank Starr sang a mm. song about it at on live album here at the State Penitentiary not, not long after it occurred. And it was on that fateful the foreman gave the cry There's fire in the sunshine mine Someone is bound to die Searchers begin to search Loved ones begin to pray I guess we never will
death stalked the sunshine mine Like a silent killer He found his prey Men never knew What happened On that fateful day As the poison gas Took its toll Loved one's hearts were filled with fear For nine long days they waited For news they'd never hear Then as suddenly as it began it ended Then came the news we all did dread The former said it's all over now loved ones can go on home. There are two survivors and 91 are dead. See the children crying, fearing their daddy's dying, broken hearts everywhere. That 1972 Sunshine Mine Fire, of course, happened much after uh, our story, but I thought that was an interesting story anyway. So being a miner at this time is not the easiest job. So let's get back to Lula. So it's 1963. Lula is busy raising her children and took on some extra child care for Mr. and Mrs. Neil Gardner in Cataldo, which is just outside of Kellogg. That job ended within the year, so in 1964, she decided to start taking in foster children through the Idaho Department of Public Assistance to make a little bit of extra money doing something that she knew how to do very well, which was take care of children. She got her first foster child almost immediately, but with a household of four children of her own, and of course she actually had five children, but her oldest daughter, Frances, had married three years earlier. Being a foster mom ended up being a lot harder than Lula thought, and so she asked the Idaho Department of Public Assistance not to send her any more children for at least a month because she was tired and sick and needed a rest. But unfortunately, the Department of Public Assistance did not listen to this request, and they sent her three children in just a few days in July 1965. Now, there were three uh, of those three kids— Two were daughters of Hollis Davidson and Lois Callahan Davidson. One of them was named Virginia, and she was only four years old. One Idaho Daily Statesman article stated that the other Davidson girl was Virginia's younger sister, Jill, and the third child was actually unrelated to the Davidson girls, and that child's name is unknown. Now, Virginia and her sister came from a somewhat troubled home. Hollis Davidson and Lois Callahan married on October 12, 1952. Now, over the next 12 years, they had seven children, two boys and five girls. I'm not sure of the order or of all the children's names, but it seems likely that Virginia was one of the youngest, perhaps the second youngest. Hollis and Lois divorced before 1964. I could not find a divorce record. And I think Lois was granted custody and Hollis was to pay $125 in child support every month. 
Now, interestingly, Hollis actually spent time at the Idaho State Penitentiary himself. In 1957, he was charged and fined $25 for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. There weren't any other details I could find on that charge. But in 1962, he was charged with failure to pay child support and came into the Idaho State Penitentiary with a five-year sentence as number 11659. But he was there for a year and a half to two years when in 1964, he was placed on parole for his release, but he fled to California almost immediately, and a warrant went out for his arrest. Around the same time, Lois was living in Renton, Washington at the time, and part of the reason that her children were given out to foster families was because she suffered burns from an unknown incident and was at the hospital. One newspaper article from the Idaho State Journal falsely reported that Lois died in the hospital, but Ancestry Records revealed that this is not true. It's just a, a case of misinformation in the newspaper. And as I said, it was really because of this brief disability that all seven of the Davidson children were placed in foster care and distributed to different homes around the area. And unfortunately, I think because there were seven it's very difficult to, to place seven children in one home. And so I think they tried to keep them at least in pairs, but, you know, they were all placed in different homes. And again, it is because of this brief disability that Virginia and her sister Jill were placed in the home of Lula and Shreve. Apparently, it was a rough adjustment for all three of the kids, but especially Virginia. And this is from a report that went to the Board of Pardons after Lula had been received at the prison. Quote, She said the children acted like animals, not having eaten off a table or slept in a bed. She said two of the children tried to learn to behave like humans, whereas Virginia would not conform. This child would deliberately soil the bed, tear off her clothes, run around naked, and eat with her fingers. Mrs. Shreve said she tried repeatedly to get the department to take them back but they would not because they could find no other place for them. She said the official told her to make the children mine and punish them when they needed it, end quote. Virginia would also apparently call the Shreve family dog Mommy, even after Lula asked her to stop, and apparently this really bugged Lula so much so that she, like, mentioned it. It seems pretty innocuous to me, but, you know, Lula was having uh, as hard of a time as as the children were, and part of that was because she was having trouble with her own kids at the time, and especially Daryl. Daryl was 22, but he was still living at home. He would stay out late at night, he would get in car wrecks, be involved in fights, and he just overall had a bad temper. And so Lula said she never slept very well while he was out because she was worried about him. And she would get up at 4.30 in the morning to get the washing, ironing, and other chores done because she couldn't do them when the three foster kids were up. And her own kids actually accused her of showing partiality toward the foster children because she did not punish them for doing things she would have punished her own kids for doing. And so she also said that she was taking tranquilizers just to function every day. Oh, no. Yeah. I was wondering. I was like, there has to be some sort of chemical imbalance mm -hmm. going on here. Because mm -hmm. when she described these kids are running around naked they're mm -hmm. eating with their hands i was like this sounds like a, like kids to me i don't yeah, <laughs> yeah. i don't see what's wrong with right. what she's saying but right. okay well and, oh, and no. especially because these kids are so young virginia's four if jill is her younger sister she can't be any older than two so you know it's not an easy job though that's i mean not to be like on her side by any oh, means yeah. but like You've got your own four children in the house, and then you've got a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and h however old this other third one is. Having three kids underneath the age of 10 is hard enough. Oh. 
Um, and then you've got, you know, your other kids on top of it. And her youngest would have been nine years old himself. So it's not like all of her kids are grown. So yeah, just this is a, a bad mixture happening right now. So, um, according to an Idaho Daily Statesman article from February 5th, 1965, Lula went to a local grocery store in Kellogg on October 4th, 1964. And the grocery clerk was named Mrs. Marion Clark, and she testified that she mentioned to Lula that she looked tired. And Lula replied that she was having trouble with the kids that the Department of Public Assistance had placed with her, supposedly saying, quote, I'll kill a couple of them, the children, if they, public assistant department officials, don't come and get them, end quote. So, October 5th, 1964, Virginia asked to go to the basement of the house, and Lula thought she said it was because she wanted to play with the family dog, who Lula was annoyed that she kept calling mommy. Lula admitted to, and here we go, Lula admitted to chaining Virginia up, quote, to keep her from coming back upstairs as I was tired from overwork, end quote. A news report from the Times News in Twin Falls stated that she did it to punish the child, quote, for refusing to get out of bed and eat, end quote. An Idaho Daily Statesman article stated that Jill had told Mrs. Shreve that Virginia had, quote, must the bed that morning, end quote, which is interesting because, again, Jill is two to three years old. I guess I don't know enough about, like, children's development ages, but that seems very early to you know, tell your foster mother that your older sister must the bed. So regardless, she chained Virginia up. Now, I'm not sure how this chaining up worked. I don't know if there was like a fetter or a restraint that like locked around her arms or her legs. One news report from the Spokane Chronicle said that Lula loosely wrapped the chain around the girl's neck and left her alone. And it was supposedly a logging chain, and that means that the chain links were much bigger than average. And according to the Times News, the chain weighed 22 pounds, which is like a good fraction of Virginia's weight. She's four years old. Like, that's unfathomable to me. And so... That's disgusting. Yeah. The chain was hooked to the wall by a nail. And... This is from the Daily Statesman, February 6, 1965, quote, She said she had heard that large chains wouldn't injure anyone, so she put it around Virginia's neck and fastened it to a nail in the ceiling, end quote. What is she reading? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So then from an article the day before, this is according to the clerk, the grocery clerk, Mrs. Clark, quote, She said she didn't figure that it would snap her neck unless she decided to kick in her feet, end quote. And I don't know what that means, but it's thoroughly unacceptable. And, like, regardless of the fact that, like, oh, it's a large chain, so it, like, won't hurt her, or, like, it won't hurt her unless, like, we purposely do something to make it hurt, I just don't understand why she's considering this an acceptable thing to do. It boggles the mind. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think that this was purposely premeditated, but it certainly does not show any sort of good judgment in any way. And this is actually in Lula's own words, quote, I had no thought of anything going wrong with the chain and do not know just how the chain got fouled up, end quote. So Lula chained up Virginia and went upstairs to rest. And between 10 and 30 minutes later, she went back downstairs to check on Virginia, quote, I saw something was wrong and called the police, end quote. 
The Spokane Chronicle stated that she found Virginia slumped over, so she removed the chain and took Virginia upstairs, saying, quote, Come on, Jenny, this isn't funny, end quote. And apparently Virginia had previously, quote-unquote, cried wolf, as it were, and so Lula thought she was, quote, putting on, end quote. The ambulance arrived soon after, and Lula claimed, quote, she knows the child was alive when Virginia w- was removed from the house because she saw her move, end quote. I guess maybe I should do perhaps a content warning, uh, trigger warning in terms of child abuse. I would recommend if you don't want to hear about um, some very difficult things that they found, um, I would recommend skipping ahead a couple minutes. So... The police and the coroner found bruises all over Virginia's body, and when Lula was questioned about it, she had several excuses. Quote, Mrs. Shreve said they were caused on the Thursday before when she was gone. She said the child had crawled under a bed naked, and her children tried to get her out by poking her with a broom, sticks, etc. End quote. She also said Virginia received bruises on her shoulder when the 22-pound chain fell on her when she released it from the ceiling. She said Virginia had bruises on her cheeks because she had fallen a few days previous. She said some of the bruises were because she had spanked Virginia with a stick. And then from a Statesman article, quote, Mrs. Shreve testified she was half sick because Virginia had kicked her in the stomach when she was beating her earlier, end quote. So at the hospital at about 1230 p.m., Virginia Davidson was declared dead. Lula was picked up immediately and charged with second degree murder. When her husband Francis came to meet her at the jail, her demeanor changed from fairly calm to emotional, telling Francis, quote, I think Ginny is dead, end quote. She asked for a preliminary trial and was released on a $2,000 bond. And the autopsy on Virginia was done the next day, October 6th. And the Kellogg coroner, A.M. Peterson, declared that the cause of death was strangulation due to a fracture of the hyoid bone and multiple contusions and abrasions. When giving testimony at Lula's trial in February, Coroner Peterson stated simply, quote, it wasn't a very pleasant sight, end quote. Oh, this is the worst, guy. It's, it's oh rough. Gosh, I wish I could have skipped ahead. It's rough. <laughs> so, yeah. and this is actually, I think, perhaps the most heartbreaking part for me. Um, Virginia's funeral, I might, all of a sudden I'm getting very emotional. So Virginia's funeral was held on October 10th, 1964, and this was her obituary in the Spokane Chronicle, quote, oh boy. Funeral services for four-year-old Virginia Davidson will be at 3 p.m. tomorrow from Maisel's McGlade Chapel. The Reverend David Mullins will officiate. Burial will be in Greenwood Cemetery. Born here January 17, 1960, the girl is survived by her mother, Lois Jean, Renton, Washington, her father, Hollis Davidson in California, two brothers, Douglas and Jeffrey, four sisters, Kathy, Cindy, Vicki, and Jill, and her grandparents, Mr. and Mrs. George McKee, Metamont, end quote. Now, Hollis Davison re-entered the state, going to Wallace to attend Virginia's funeral, and he was arrested for violation of parole of his non-support charges, all because he attended his four-year-old daughter's funeral, which is... Oh, my gosh. I don't know why I'm crying about that, but it's, I mean, unfair. It's heartbreaking. And four days later, after his four-year-old daughter's funeral... He, uh, on February 14th, he was sentenced to five years of hard labor at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Wow, I did not expect to get so emotional. My apologies. Oh, Scott. Oh, no. This is a heavy one. It's heavy. Yeah. 
So after Hollis had been arrested and given the tragedy that had happened to Virginia, the other six Davidson children were then placed with an uncle who owned a ranch in Oregon. So Lula's trial for second-degree murder began on February 1st, 1965. The jury was made up of nine men and three women. And the prosecuting attorney, Richard Magnuson, tried to change the wording of the charge from, quote, beating and strangulation, end quote, to just strangulation, probably because beating may have been more difficult to prove. Now, this motion was actually denied by Judge James Towles. Magnuson said that he, quote, would attempt to prove the death of the little girl was not premeditated, but was caused with malice aforethought, end quote. Defense attorneys filed a motion to prohibit admitting the logging chain and stick into evidence, which they claimed was seized illegally from the home. Judge Towles also denied this motion. So on February 3rd, Dr. Glenn Whitesell of Kellogg, another coroner, testified that Virginia's death had been caused by strangulation, and when he examined her, she had bruises on both cheekbones, her forehead, and body. And Dr. A.M. Peterson, the original coroner's testimony, was similar to Dr. Whitesell's. Seven pictures of Virginia were actually introduced as evidence as well, and I am so thankful that we do not have those, because I probably would not even be able to do this story if we did. On February 4th, Mrs. Marion Clark, uh, who was the clerk at the grocery store, gave her testimony on the stand. That same day, a man named Burton Loveless, who was a caseworker for the Public Assistance Department, testified that he visited the Shreve home on October 2nd, three days before Virginia's death. And so this is from a Statesman article on February 5th, quote, He said the children were neatly dressed and sat quietly during the interview, but Mrs. Shreve told him they were destructive. He said she told of the children unraveling the seam from a blanket and bending a pen she had as a keepsake. He said she told him she had threatened to beat them to death and cut off their fingers. She said she had made new clothes for them in an attempt to bribe them into being good, but they had enough clothes and weren't behaving. He said he noticed bruises on both cheeks of the Davidson girl the day of the interview, end quote. Even though Lula's actions are despicable, I think it also needs to be questioned why this caseworker saw the deplorable conditions, heard what Lula had to say, and still thought it was a good idea to keep the children in the home. So February 5th, Lula took the stand in her own defense. She said she was, quote, unquote, afraid of the two Davidson girls, quote, because her own children were resentful, unquote. She stated she and Virginia went down to the basement, quote, where she saw the big chain. She said she had heard that large chains wouldn't injure anyone, so she put it around Virginia's neck and fastened it to the nail in the ceiling, end quote. This sort of makes it seem like it was a spur-of-the-moment decision. She walked in, she saw the big chain, this will be a way to keep her in line. Regardless, it's a horrible decision. Just absolutely poor judgment. Then on February 6th, after six days of testimony, the jury was excused to deliberate, and they deliberated for eight hours before they found Lula Shreve guilty of involuntary manslaughter. So five days later, on February 11th, Judge Towles sentenced Lula Shreve to an indeterminate sentence up to 10 years in prison for her crime. From a Statesman article the next day, February 12th, quote, Deputy sheriffs restrained the son of Mrs. Lula Shreve Thursday. This is not right, shouted Daryl Shreve, 25, as he pounded on the defense table with his fist. Seconds earlier, the officials held him back when the young man jumped up, slammed his chair to the floor, and made a gesture toward the bench, courtroom witnesses said, end quote. Another quote, Mrs. Shreve, 43, convicted last week, burst into tears when the verdict was read. You mean I'm not going home? End quote. She was not going home. She entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on February 17, 1965, and here is her intake form. 
So Lula Ann Shreve, number 11732, from Shoshone County, race, white, age, 43, height is 63 and 3 fourths inches, weight, 109 pounds, eyes, blue, hair, light brown, complexion, medium, occupation, child care, and housework. She was married with five children, and it cites that she was married and divorced twice before, remarried her first husband, four children by first husband, and one by second marriage. And then her education was 12th grade. When she entered, she joined 13 other women, including Janet Brzezicki, who I covered just a few episodes ago, and Phyllis May Mink, who was in uh, Season 3, Episode 3. And she basically made a full house. 14 was the full capacity of the prison. Another inmate joined just a week later, and another one joined a week after that, which made 16. And no one left for an entire month. So this is an incredibly full and probably very volatile women's ward. She first appeared before the Board of Pardons on October 7th, 1965, which is eight months after she got into prison. Um, Her attorney, Alan Arder, appeared first, presenting, quote, the board with some documents from a doctor and other persons, which her husband had obtained, requesting an early release for Mrs. Shreve. Mr. Durr said he had very little to say at this time because he realizes it is a little too soon to request any consideration for her now, end quote. She appeared before the board half an hour later, requesting a commutation of sentence. Quote, she wants to go home to her family who need her, end quote. Her 17-year-old daughter, who was supposed to graduate from Kellogg High School, was taking care of her two youngest children and doing the housework. Quote, she wants to see that her daughter has the opportunity to get a higher education just as her two older children had, end quote. A letter was found in her file dated November 1965 from Robert M. Robson, who was her defense attorney, and seems as if she wrote him accusing him of doing a bad job and that she was displeased with the length of her sentence, thinking that Robson could have gotten her a lighter sentence. And she was also apparently displeased with the fee that he had charged her. So this is his letter back to her. Quote, I have your letter dated October 30th, 1965, and detect extreme bitterness, which apparently has focused on me. You may recall that at the time you were arrested and Mr. Tucson asked me to try this case, I advised both you and Francis that it was my opinion the most you were guilty of was manslaughter, and this was the finding of the jury. Had you been convicted of second-degree murder, you could have been sentenced to life in prison, which would have meant a minimum of 10 years. I'm aware that you have discussed this matter with Mr. Durr, and that he told you that you might have appealed on the grounds that you were under the influence of drugs during the trial. We both know that you were given tranquilizers by prescriptions and under the control of a medical practitioner, and was going on in the courtroom during the trial, and that your ability to reason was not affected. As your attorney, there was nothing I could do or can do at this time about the sentence of 10 years. The question is not whether I considered the sentence just and fair under the circumstances, but what the judge considered just and fair under the circumstances. In my opinion, you had a fair trial and your constitutional rights were protected throughout. Apparently, the fee for your defense bothers you. The $2,500 which was charged for this trial was divided equally between Mr. Tucson and myself and, as you know, is being paid at the rate of $25 a month. I personally spent more than two full working months on this case. For your information, my normal income for two months would be in the neighborhood of $4,500. Mr. Tucson and I feel we did everything possible for you without demanding more money than you could pay at the time. I have no doubt that your behavior has been beyond reproach, and there is not doubt in my mind that it will continue to be. However, it is quite apparent to me that your mental attitude toward this affair has not changed. You are seeking to place the blame for your difficulties on other people, including me. You might as well face the fact now that it was your acts and your will which placed you in the position you now find yourself. 
Quite frankly, the final result of whether or not anything good can come out of this situation depends entirely on a change of mental attitude so far as you are concerned. Unfortunately, the state of Idaho does not have the kind of professional help and service to give you to help you solve your problems, and therefore it is strictly up to you and your own efforts which would make your life and the life of those you love so much easier and more useful." End quote. So I think that's a great letter because he really is like taking her to task. And I think that's what she deserves to say, you know, to say, like, stop blaming other people, take responsibility for what you did and like, let's move on. So she next put herself in front of the board in August 1906 for a commutation of sentence. And so the board of corrections advised her that she would be eligible for release after serving three and one third years of her tenure sentence. Now, according to the same report that she put in front of the board, by this point in her sentence, she had quote-unquote remodeled 350 articles of clothing and taught other inmates how to sew and knit, quote, which is her way of contributing to the rehabilitation, end quote. And this is a quote, again, from the report, quote, she said some of the women said she is crazy for doing that, and she actually wonders sometimes if she is crazy and needs to go to a mental institution. In answer to the board's inquiry, she said she would really appreciate being examined by an SHS psychiatrist, end quote. Now, at the time, she was receiving letters from her mother and sisters, but she told the board she, quote, didn't want to be bothered, end quote, with them. She said she hadn't been in contact with them for 10 years, that they wanted to ruin her life and her children's lives. And she said they were not more people and she did not want her children to associate with them. After this report, the motion was made that commutation of her sentence be denied. A year passed, and she placed herself in front of the Board of Corrections for parole in August 1967. From the report, quote, she said she is ashamed to say she is relaxed now and is enjoying herself here, end quote. She was asking for a parole, but saying if she couldn't be released on parole, she would wait for a final release. Francis told her that he would be willing to take a job in Canada or in Harrison, Idaho, which is about 20 miles south of Coeur d'Alene, as he believed he would not be able to keep his job at the Bunker Hill Mines if he moved. And it was sort of expected that the couple would move away from Kellogg and Wardner because of what she had done. So she said that she hoped that they wouldn't have to move at least to Harrison because she couldn't imagine living 50 miles away from her kids and only seeing them twice a week or making them drive that far every day. The board considered her request. They said that they thought that she should be restricted from going back to her home community. Basically, like, we'll consider this if you promise not to want to go back to where you were before. So they basically continued her case to April. They sort of shelved it instead of sort of denying it. She would have served the one-third of her sentence on June 17, 1968. But she, again, didn't want to wait until June 1978, so she placed herself in front of the board in January 1968 to again request a commutation of sentence, again from the report. Quote, she said she hoped to be able to go home soon before school vacation starts so she could be alone during the daytime and gradually become adjusted to the change in the children because they've grown so much since she has been here. She said she would gladly take a parole, end quote the board motion to commute her sentence to nine years. So this made one-third of her sentence at three years, meaning she would be eligible for parole by February 1968. And in this same motion, she was granted a parole effective February 17, 1968, subject to approved parole program and good conduct. And so parole officer made a thorough check on her case at Wardner and, quote, found that it would be a very poor location for her to live because of the feeling against her there. The sheriff and deputy sheriff are very much upset about her returning to her former home, end quote. 
So Francis actually learned that he probably could move to Harrison and still keep his job at Bunker Hill Mines. He said he was even willing to move to St. Marie's, which is even further east than Harrison, to commute back and forth if that would be a better placement. She didn't want to move her children from the school that they were attending since the school year was almost over. She also said she had $196 available to her, which could pay rent for a while. From a report, quote, She again started to tell about the Department of Public Assistance forcing three children upon her to take care of. The parole officer advised her not to go up there and run the DPA down, because that might eventually cause her to be brought back here as a parole violator. He advised her not to talk about her problems. What is done is done, and she shouldn't relive them, end quote. Apparently, they settled on a satisfactory parole plan, and she was released from prison on February 17, 1968, and she served three years of a 10-year sentence for manslaughter. Her first letter, checking in on parole, came on March 30, 1968. Quote, I am tentatively staying at Harrison, came here Friday evening, March 29th, so the children and I can spend the five days together and really enjoy each other. The children are here with me now and will leave Sunday evening to return Tuesday evening after school, end quote. And this is um, still from the letter, quote, To this point, everything is the same as when I talked to you. Francis has had several interested parties looking at the house, but so far none have taken it. If you should happen to be in this area, I am in the first house on the left of the Harrison Bridge coming from Harrison, end quote. She lived in Harrison for the rest of 1968, and by 1970, she and her husband had moved to Silver Beach, which is just outside of Coeur d'Alene, living in a mobile home with her husband. Quote, I am not working, as being a full-time wife and mother and grandmother takes all my time, and I am enjoying it to the very utmost. There have been no incidents to make our residents here uncomfortable, and we are all part of a growing community of mobile homeowners. There are eight trailers here now, where our voice is as important as any, end quote. In February 1971, she wrote the parole board asking for a final discharge from parole. Quote, I've had no trouble, arrests, citations, or conflicts in these three years since leaving the Idaho State Penitentiary. The few times it has been necessary for me to go to Shoshone County, I found only friendliness. I do not go there unless it is absolutely necessary. Those who cared enough have found me here at Silver Beach. My life is full with two high school student activities. We are contented in our mobile home that is almost paid for, end quote. On the same day, she sent a similar letter to Mr. Rogers, perhaps hoping that she could get a little bit of extra influence on the board for her release. Quote, Except for the arthritis in my hands, I am enjoying good health and just being a wife and mother and grandma. I keep busy at home and the time flies. Over the three years, we have been amazed at the number of friends who cared enough to look us up and renew old friendships. None of the ones who raised so much fuss have bothered us since we moved here. End quote. Apparently, the multiple letters worked, and she received a final discharge from parole on February 9, 1971. And this is from Donnie Rogers, who is the chief of probation and parole. Quote, The years have certainly sped by, and it is rather coincidental that I should have the opportunity to sign your final discharge from parole supervision. I am pleased to read your progress letters of February 1970 and again this year, and I am sure that you are aware how pleased we are to be able to point to someone such as you and say, here is a citizen of our state who has been returned to the community as a useful citizen, end quote. So these are the last letters in her file that she wrote, but not the last important papers in her file. And apparently in 1975, she wrote the Commission of Pardons and Parole to ask for a full pardon. And Ben F. Eberhardt, executive secretary of the board, wrote her back saying, quote, After checking your file, the commission must advise you that a person convicted of a crime of violence such as yours is not eligible to apply for a pardon until five years after the date of discharge from parole. 
Therefore, you will not be eligible for pardon consideration until February 1976. At that time, you may again make an application, end quote. So I'm not exactly sure if she applied again in 1976 or 1977, but the next letters that I found were dated September 22nd, 1978, and they were from Pat Harwell, who was the executive secretary and commissioner of the board. And it says, quote, It is my great pleasure to forward to you the pardon granted July 19th, 1978, to you by the state of Idaho. This is in recognition of hard work and perseverance on your part, and you are to be congratulated. Best wishes in the future, end quote. So Lula and Francis and their kids lived in relative peace for the next 13 years, and Lula and Shreve died on January 23rd, 1991, at the age of 69. She is buried in the Riverview Cemetery at Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and Francis died nine years later in 2000, and they were buried side by side. So that is the story of uh, Lula and Shreve. And again, like, I, I guess, you know, I'm not trying to say that, like, I'm sympathetic to her, but I think that my opinion of her definitely changed from one that was just like, you know, this is a cruel and heartless individual who, you know, did this horrible, terrible thing to, she absolutely did a horrible, terrible thing but, you know, it was a stressful situation. She was overworked. She wasn't getting any sleep. She was perhaps over-medicated. And she didn't intend to kill the girl. But she did intend to, like, chain her up. And that is fully unacceptable. And so it is, a, you know, it's a complicated story. But there is some sort of redemption, I think, to be found in the fact that she got out and she tried to sort of move past the, you know, the circumstances of being in prison and became a useful citizen. And, and, and at the end of the day, isn't that sort of what we hope for when people leave being incarcerated, leave the prison, that, that they leave and they become, you know, useful citizens in society? Is she good? Is she bad? I think she's both. Just, a, I think, an interesting thing for us to be thinking about in terms of what people do and, and how they should be treated when, when they leave. Yeah, emotional roller coaster. This <laughs> whole episode, I feel like, has kind of been one. But it's hard not to feel empathy while we are reading the stories mm-hmm. of these people and the mm-hmm. paths that they start on and how they all kind of divulge to this critical point where they make a bad decision. And there's something to say about the openness of sedatives and like barbiturates and things like that in the 50s mm-hmm. and 60s and the mm-hmm. numbers of crimes that occurred probably due to the over-the-counter aspect of a lot of these chemicals and mm-hmm. it's what a tough story guy <sighs> yeah i mean did not mean to just start crying in the middle of that oh, but you did um... so good wow i <laughs> man it was hard to listen to wow just uh <sighs> well happy uh season five finale everyone, <laughs> everyone. <laughs> yeah have a great day everybody <laughs> <laughs> all right enjoy your summer yeah, but seriously, everybody, <laughs> thank you for listening and, you know, coming back every week and, and learning some Idaho history. I learned a lot. I haven't dug into that uh, 70s sunshine mine disaster. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually, so there's the you can actually read the full report. It's just online. If you know anything about mining, I think that report is going to be really useful. And and even if you don't, like, it is still useful. Like, I pulled a lot of information from that. Really interesting. Yeah, it was a little bit of a rabbit hole, slightly unrelated, 
But uh, actually, I mean, she would have been in that area at that time. Uh, right. You know, she was in Harrison in, in 72, which is, you know, 20 miles away. So I, I hope that it like encourages people to like explore local areas because there's, it's inspired there's me. so much in Idaho. Yeah. Yes, I definitely like I since we've been doing this, I want to go check out like Wallace and um, go all these like fun ghost mining towns. Like I've been inspired. Yeah. So this is going to be the summer of Idaho exploration for yeah. me. Yeah. And so everyone, if you, you know, it's the summer that hopefully most COVID restrictions have lifted. And so take take your summer vacation to as we are working hard to get you a new season, go explore a little bit. Have fun. Yeah. And let us know on, on Facebook where you go and, yeah. and recommend some places because I'm always down to explore. Totally. Another season in the books, my friend. Another season down. All right. We've only got, what, 13,000 more stories to go? Yeah, Something that's like it. That. It's not that many. <laughs> Just like 80 more seasons is all. 80 more. Yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody. Do your own time. Do your own number. Come visit the old pen. Come visit the State History Museum. Check out everything we've got going on. We've got lots coming up on the calendar. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.